The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to another episode of the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a guest who I've been looking forward to speaking to for a long time. We've planned to do multiple podcasts, but we're both we've both been traveling, and it's been a struggle to find where our times align. But here we are. She is a great thinker a great writer and a very interesting person who I can't wait to tell you about. And this is the one and only Africa Brooke. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much. And yes, you're right. I think you and I have been trying to do this maybe for the past three months, something like that, something like that. But as always, I think everything happens exactly when it needs to. And I have just come back from Zimbabwe, as we were talking about, after 21 years of not being from the land that I'm from. And I feel a sense of being revitalized and I feel more grounded and I feel more, yeah, I feel more affirmed in my message and the work that I do. So I actually believe that the conversation you and I are about to have is very timely and it's happening at just the right time. Um, but thank you so much for even having me on here. I'm of so course. excited. No, it's same. It's it's an honor. So I know that there will be some listeners who are familiar with you, but there will be a lot of people who aren't. So tell them a little bit about yourself. Yes. Um, so in terms of what I like to think of as the, the chosen labels that I wear in the world in terms of the work that I do, I'm a consultant and I'm a mentor and I'm a speaker and a writer as well. And the main two pillars that I focus on in my work are self-sabotage and self-censorship. And I have been publicly sharing, especially when it comes to self-sabotage for the past six years. And that started with me sharing my own journey of trying to get sober when I was in my 20s. When I was 24 years old, I had relapsed seven times and I had nowhere else to turn to apart from writing. So I started an anonymous journal on Instagram where I would just share my downfalls anytime that I wanted to pick up a drink or smoke something or snort something, I would write about it. And I used that as a form of accountability. And I just fell into the world of psychology from then, the world of self-improvement and psychology very specifically, because I wanted to understand what was keeping me in my own cycle of self-destruction. 
And my platform, which I never thought of as a platform at the time, it was just an open journal because I had, I had, it was my only option for me to hold myself account, accountable publicly. Um, I ended up building a platform that became quite big very quickly. I think because of my age at the time, being 24 and wanting to understand why I was in this cycle of relapsing and I was doing this quite publicly, I think it was just something quite unique at the time. And my work then evolved into understanding different areas of self-sabotage, which is essentially when you get in your own way. And over the years, it has become a focus on self-censorship as well, because even in my own story with sobriety, I realized that I was withholding certain ideas and certain thoughts and certain opinions that I had around addiction, wanting to get sober, around the self-help industry, the things that I was seeing, but I was censoring a lot of my own true thoughts out of fear of what people think. So self-censorship is something that I was also exploring almost indirectly with the work that I've been doing. Then a couple of years ago, which I think was is where most people would know me from, a couple of years ago, I just started to notice something that was happening culturally that reminded me of self-sabotage in and of itself. And I refer to it as collective sabotage, mm -hmm. where suddenly people were starting to behave in ways that went very much against what they said that they were for. And I was always someone that was an advocate for progression, an advocate for social justice, as in true social justice, an advocate for honest activism, an advocate for tough conversations is something I've been doing in my career for the past six years. But I realized that it was becoming increasingly difficult to ask questions. It was becoming very difficult to have important conversations. We were becoming even more divided, but it was being positioned as progress. And I realized that even though I was a very confident person, I was afraid to say these things out loud. I was terrified and I wouldn't be able to tell you who I was actually afraid of. I just knew that there was something that was preventing me from speaking. And that because of the identities that I wear in the world as a black person, as a woman, as someone that is more left-leaning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that means I shouldn't question things. So again, as someone that has been really trying to understand the psychology of self-sabotage and self-censorship through my own personal experience and with the work I do with my clients, I realized that I was actually equipped to look at this from a very different perspective. I was equipped to look at this from a psychological perspective, which I think what was happening was um, an attack on people's psychology for many reasons, and I'm sure we'll speak about it. But I ended up writing an open letter called Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness. And in that letter, I put all of my, what I call unthinkable thoughts. I put everything in there and I left nothing on the table. And that letter was just supposed to be for my own peace of mind. It was for my own integrity. It was for me to release the things that I had been harboring for the past few years. And I thought it would be read just by the 5,000 people, which is still a lot of people that were on my newsletter, which I, I never really shared anything on. But then I realized that by leaving it on my newsletter, I'm still playing it safe. I have to share this publicly. Again, I didn't think about where it would end up, but I think the timing of this was also something that influenced the 7 million people that ended up reading this letter. 
I posted it on the 1st of January, 2021. And mm -hmm. a few days later, January the 6th came. So the timing of that letter and the division I was speaking about and the manipulation that was happening that I was seeing resonated with a lot of people. Um, so I think a lot of people listening to this or a lot of people that have encountered my work in the past couple of years would have found me through that open letter that I wrote, but then that I wrote, but maybe some people have been following my work for the past six years and they've seen that uh, process of me evolving the conversation from it being about self-sabotage and then collective sabotage. So that's uh, in a nutshell, in a very long nutshell, that's, that's me and what I do and how you and I have ended up here together. So. That, that's a lot there. So, man, there's so mm. many different directions that I feel we could go in. Be before we go in depth on some of the stuff you just talked about, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your background. So you talked a little bit yeah. about uh, being from Zimbabwe and then mm. growing up more in the UK. And then you sort of jumped to some things that were happening in your 20s. But give us mm. a little bit more of a picture of everything leading up say from zero to mid twenties when you started going on this journey? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Zimbabwe and okay. it's still, it's still the place that I call home. When someone asks me where I'm from, it's, it's what comes out of my mouth. I'm Zimbabwean and it's the language that I speak with my family, Shona at home. It's embedded in who I am. Um, but I left when I was quite young, when I was nine years old, we moved to the UK because it was also at the time where Zimbabwe economically and politically, it was very much on a decline in the late 90s, early 2000s. So for my mother, it was very important for us to start a life somewhere else because it just wasn't working in the country that we lived in. Mm -hmm. And she was in You were a becoming very... billionaires. You were becoming billionaires <laughs> and trillionaires far too quickly. Right, far yeah. too quickly. Far too... <laughs> was, far too quickly. There was a point in time, Zubi, when to buy a loaf of bread, you needed a wheelbarrow because that's how much money you need. It's yeah. in, insanity. insanity. Yeah, I, when I was in school, I remember in my teens having some friends, a couple of friends from Zimbabwe when yeah. I was in school. And I remember them coming into class and showing us these like $500 billion notes and tri trillion dollars. <laughs> we, we were all just confused. This is back when. I think I'd sort kind of sort of heard of inflation, but didn't yeah. really know what it meant. Didn't and, really understand what yeah. it meant, right? So exactly. So for those reasons and many other reasons, my mother, who was pretty much leading our family at that point in time, I have two older sisters and one younger brother. Um, she just knew that we had to leave the country to start a different, to start a different and much better life somewhere else. And at the time, it was much easier to come to Britain than it is now. Um, and I'm really grateful that everything that happened in my life happened when it did, because my life would look very different, very different, which is why I also speak in the way that I do about things like oppression, et cetera, which I'm sure we'll speak about at some point. But um, at a very young age, came to the UK and a big piece of that as in why my mother was leading the family is because my father was completely incapable of doing so anymore. He was an alcoholic. 
um, a very serious alcoholic. By the time I was seven, eight, nine years old, he was a completely different man to the man that I had grown up with in my younger years. And it was a two-parent household, two-parent household. My parents were married. We had a wonderful, wonderful home. I had a brilliant upbringing. We were by no means wealthy or anything like that. We were working class family. But at that time in Zimbabwe, even if you were working class, you lived quite a good, comfortable life because you were supported by the government and the system until the late 90s when things started changing quite a lot. Um, so my dad couldn't lead the family anymore. Alcoholism was pretty much ruling his life at that point. And the plan was for him to follow on to the UK at some point, but he ended up passing away um, in 2004. So my mum ended up being the sole parent and trying her very, very best um, to take care of all four of us. But for me, by the age of 14, I started to repeat a lot of the patterns um, that my father had caught himself in and one of those things was drinking the sort of drinking patterns that he would engage and exhibit i adopted the very same things from the age of 14. Mm. and you know i this is something that i say all the time but i think culturally here in the uk and i wonder what you think about this um drinking is just seen as a rite of passage especially when you're a young person whether you're 13, 14, 15, 16, it's just seen as, you know, it's what everyone does. So there's never, unless it's at the far extreme, it's very difficult for people to see that you need help. But for me, I blacked out the very first time that I drunk, which maybe some people think, okay, that's that's no big deal. If you drink a lot, you're you're very likely to black out. But it happened from that moment on, it happened almost every single time that I drunk because binge drinking is the type of mm. drinking that I was training. It's the type of drinking that I'd seen with my father, my father's friends, when, you know, we would, back in Zimbabwe, when my sister and I would be walking from school and we see my father and his friends sitting on the side of the road, just drinking, it was the, that was the way to drink. It was not mm. having just one glass or enjoying the taste. I just, I just didn't know that it could look like that. Um, so that pattern and that way of drinking followed me up until I was 24. From the age of 14 up until 24 when I got sober, I relapsed seven times. And that's not counting the times in between when I would do something so shameful and just tell myself that I'm not going to drink again. Those seven times I had really, really hit rock bottom. Um, and I would go for periods thinking that, okay, I think, I, I think I've got this. It's been three months, it's been six months, it's been seven months, I think I, I do this. And for me, that was, a very, um, that was a very revealing time for so, so many reasons. Only, not only because I was able to see my father and myself in a way that I never thought I would, but because I started to really see what loss looks like in terms of losing relationships, in terms of losing yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And I didn't have the language that I have right now. I, I didn't think about the psychology behind it. I didn't think about the patterns of my father. I didn't think about what's happening on a brain-based level. To me, I was just a shameful person. I was just a bad person. I was always going to be like this. Um, so by the time I was 24, so that's sort of my, my journey for those 10 years, Ubi, I, there's not really much else that I could say. It was just a pattern 
of partying, drinking, having sex, partying, drinking, having sex, feeling ashamed, hiding myself away, trying to create a new identity, promising that I would change, and then repeating the very same things over and over and over and over again for a decade. So that very last time when I was 24, people always ask, so what was the what was the moment that you decided that, okay, this is the last time? There, w- there wasn't even a specific kind of moment. It was just a, I always think of it as a spiritual exhaustion. And I think there are people, when you're just so tired, spiritually tired of being in the same place, sometimes it, does, it doesn't take a profound, loud event. It's, it's almost just like a knowing that, okay, now it's time. Um, And for me, part of that, part of me acknowledging and honoring that knowing was then me sharing publicly online, which I started doing in 2016. And then it's, it's evolved from there. But that was sort of the, that was sort of the journey that I took from nine years old up until 14, being introduced Mm -hmm. to alcohol, and then the 10 years that followed. I hear that. When Mm. you were, say, especially 14, 15, because that's, that strikes me as, as pretty young. Yeah. How how did you get involved in that? Was that a social thing? Did, were you hanging around a lot of friends and people who were influencing you in that direction? Was it something that you were, because I'm trying to think of, I know teenagers, of course, can, can hide things from, from their parents, but of course, you've got, you know, you've got your, you've got your parents, you've got your yeah. siblings as well. How do you, how are you kind of doing that? without was that something they were concerned about or did you hide it from them right what did that look yeah. like? yeah yeah so it was the the most interesting thing about my upbringing especially with the part that alcohol played was that the only person in my family who even drunk alcohol was my father my mm. mother does not drink she never has she was quite a religious woman as we were growing up she was yes yeah, she was very religious Um, Not strictly so, but religion was a big part of her life. So her life philosophy didn't include alcohol. Mm -hmm. And my siblings, they never drank either. So in our home, there was no alcohol. By the time we had moved to the UK, because my father wasn't present and he was the only person drinking, there was nothing like that. So it's not even like um, I had picked it up from this new environment that we were in and it was surrounding me. No, not at all. Mm -hmm. Even with family, extended family, being Zimbabwean, being from a Christian home, it just means that no one really drinks as much, you know. Um, so it's definitely something that I picked up socially from school. It's something that I found, um, I've always had a, a quite a rebellious nature. I've always just naturally as a person wanted to know why I can't do something. Why is something wrong? Why am I not allowed to do it? You know, the more you tell me I'm not allowed to do it, the more I will want to do it. The more you tell me that it's bad, the more I will want to find out for myself why it's bad or the more exciting it will be, the more thrilling it will be. So by the time that, you know, I was just hanging out with friends in the park at that age, it just felt like, okay, yeah, I do. I do want to try this thing. I can see someone maybe next to me swaying. Maybe they're stumbling their words a little bit, but people are laughing. It's fun. So I, I think it was quite, um, it seemed quite natural for me to just join in. I didn't even ask any questions. And when I saw what it could do to my state of mind, that it could make me forget that I was feeling insecure. It, it would make me not even consider that, 
I am the only black person in my entire group of friends because we were living in Kent at the time as well mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. So okay. it was it was very different. It was not like London where it's very diverse. It's an obvious sense of you know diversity mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, so alcohol just kind of made me feel like I could perfectly fit in without any sort of friction. Um, but it's definitely something that was social and it continued to be something that I've used as a as a non-negotiable social tool, mm. actually. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I actually have a lot of thoughts and considerations about this given my own personal stance and also my own upbringing. Because as you probably know, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. So I yes. grew up in a dry country, not just in terms of the temperature, but <laughs> I, grew, I grew up in a place where alcohol is illegal it's 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 bad it's generally it's generally not part at all of the society of the culture and so on yes of course there are people who are able to get their hands on alcohol in saudi arabia and other middle eastern countries but it's just i grew up with it not even just not not being a thing not being a thing and then i went to boarding school from the age of 11 in the uk so from 11 and then up until 20 in university i was in the UK, but still flying back and forth between the UK and Saudi Arabia. So I've certainly seen um, British drinking culture upfront and personal for many decades at this point. Um, I personally don't drink. I I, I don't drink at all. I I stopped drinking completely. I never drank a lot, but I drank a little bit from, I guess, around 15 to 22. And then at 22, 23, I've just been completely you know, like just teetotal, just no, you know, I'm not even, not even interested. I was never that interested to begin with. I've never had a hangover. I've certainly never blacked out or anything like that. Even when I, when I did drink, I was never someone who really liked it, but I was just like, no, this is, I'm not into this, but I personally Mm. think, and some people won't like me saying this. I think that the UK in general, British culture has a globally, to be honest, this is an internationally known thing. British people around the world are known for, this binge drinking culture yes. and this drunkenness mm-hmm. culture. And I love the UK, but I think that that is one mark on it that people don't like being open and honest about. I think that there Agreed. are, I think that there are a very high number of functional alcoholics in the UK. I think that there are people with, and, and I'll tell you how I, how I see this. When I see people boasting that they've gone a week without a drink, or when people mm-hmm. are doing things like dry January or sober October. And I'm like, it shouldn't be going a week without a drink. Shouldn't be an achievement, bro. Right. Like that's not, right. like, that's, that's not a long time or some people have oh, three days without alcohol. And I'm like, what? Because to, to me, alcohol is a drug. It is a drug. It I mean, is. It's, it's, a, it is. it's a socially acceptable drug. And it's weird because if I say I don't drink, everyone asks me why. If I say I don't do Coke or I don't smoke weed even, or I don't, um, I, I don't do, no, no one asks me why or wants me to justify my position or whatever. Right. But if I say I don't drink alcohol, people look at you like you're weird. It really puts you mm-hmm. in the minority. I don't feel compelled to explain myself unless I want to, but yes. the way that it's sort of treated or the fact that you can go to a, a club or a bar or something in the UK and the dance floor is just empty. All right, dance floor is empty, and people. Oh, I I need to drink. I I can't dance. Right? right, I need to I need to drink more. Or oh, I can't talk to that person I'm attracted to because I'm not drunk yet, or so on. And I'm like, hmm, that's weird, and that's not a global thing around the world. Yes, you 
you shouldn't need to be drunk to dance. You shouldn't need yes. to be drunk to socialize. Sure. If you want to have a couple of drinks and it loosens you up a little bit, that's one thing. But for it to be something you need in order to do things right. that are just sort of normal and basic and fun, to me, that's a concern. And, you know, mm. some people might hear that and be like, oh, you're being judgmental or whatever. I, I, no. I don't care. I do think that that is abnormal. I don't think that that is healthy. I think that if you struggle to go a few days or a few weeks or even a month, I think if you struggle to go a month without without alcohol, certainly a week, I think you you have some type of addiction and reliance and no one wants to admit that they have that. But I think that's honestly the case. I agree. And I'm, I'm so glad that you said that and you've articulated that perfectly, because when I finally did get sober at 24, I felt like I was starting all over again, because even to just relate to people, it felt very difficult because I I always felt and I had trained myself to believe that I needed that lubricant to have a conversation, Mm. to flirt with someone, to dance, to be more expressive. I I felt like something was always missing for such a long time. Actually, for the first year in my Mm. sobriety, I still felt like something was missing because I had trained myself to just get a drink and it's everywhere. As you're saying, it's everywhere. It's Mm. not as if you have to jump through any kind of hoop to to get alcohol. No, it's quite literally everywhere, which is why I I commend people who have either never drunk before, who drunk and decided, you know what, I actually don't like this. People who Mm. have managed to get sober because the access to it is so easy. So yeah, I I think what you're saying is actually very important because it makes you believe that to do the most normal things, you need alcohol and you couldn't possibly do it. So I I think it's it's a very big cultural thing. And when you go around the world, and I'm sure as you have, you've gone to many different environments, met people of so many different cultures, you do realize that actually this is a uniquely cultural thing, a very Mm -hmm. British thing. Um, So yeah, but I, I was able to be with that discomfort of trying to find my feet again without alcohol and then realizing how much credit we give to things outside of us. Um, Yeah. 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 I actually have a, I have a little bit of a theory on why I think, why I think it's like that in the UK. Um, Uh. I have a theory that in British society and British culture, people are on average are quite reserved. People are quite reserved and restrained and very polite and polite in a keeping to themselves kind of way. Um, British culture in general is not very, British people are not known for being particularly expressive and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, extroverted and people kind of keep to themselves. And a lot of colder countries have this. I mean, you know, funnily enough, I think it seems to even be related to the, the, the climate of a country. It seems that people from colder places, whether it's the UK or even Northern European countries, Scandinavia, Russia, so on, um, they're, they're more reserved and a little bit cold in that way. Not in, not in a harsh way, just in this more reserved way. Then you look at even just even within Europe. And then you look at the more like Mediterranean Southern place, people are more loose and open and extroverted and social kind of, but as a default. So I think that in the UK, it's kind of like, because people are so reserved and don't express themselves so much and so on that alcohol sort of is an overcorrection 
Um, right. I, think, I think it helps people to get out of what's what's that word? I'm what's the word I'm looking for? Not not inhib, in, inhibition. Right. I think people uh -huh. are quite socially uh -huh. and culturally inhibited here. And so people like to over drink as an overcorrection so that, OK, cool, it's the weekend. Let's go out on the lash. Let's do that. Whereas I think in places yes. where on a day to day basis, people are more open and outgoing and uninhibited right. and so on that they feel kind of less need to drink. You know, that people drink everywhere for the most part, yes. but they don't go, they don't need to go so far because they're not over yes. overcorrecting so much. That's my theory. Yes. I think that's a pretty good theory because even when you think of the language that is used around alcohol, which is what mm -hmm. it is, alcohol, what it does, it lowers your inhibitions, right? Yes. So I think even when you think of it in that way, I don't I don't think that's far fetched at all. Um mm -hmm. and if you look at yeah, other countries that have yeah. you know one place I've been to where I think the binge drinking was even worse than the UK is Iceland. Go to Reykjavik really? on a weekend. Holy crap, man. I was really? like, yo, I thought people Yeah. And but it, it's it's cold, it's dark, it's it's isolated, right? So and again, right. Icelandic people as a cult, they're 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 quite reserved and so on. And then you look at Russia, right? Russia, yes. people are again, people are known for being cold climate, colder people, colder overall. And so people, I mean, people literally drink to stay warm there. But yes. I think that there there's more drinking because yeah, they're 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 overcorrecting, and there seems to be. There does seem to literally be a connection between the climate, like the both the the geographic uh -huh. climate and the social climate, and the culture and alcohol is the way alcohol is treated is a part of this. It's not. I don't think it's a perfect rule, but I think it's a it's a noticeable correlation. I've never thought about it like that. I've never thought about it like that, especially the climate piece. Um, and I think that's actually. I, yeah, I want to be looking into that because I find that yeah. so fascinating. Because <laughs> I don't know I'm, if it's right? been studied. I'm just, uh, I'm just you, looking. You I've, traveled, I've traveled a lot and I've noticed <laughs> these patterns. Yes, because I've had so many people, of course, in my own sobriety journey, even prior to um, speak about alcohol, whether it's through a cultural lens, but I don't think I've ever heard that piece around the climate. And as you say, I'm like, yeah, of course, that that actually makes sense. Um Hmm. Yeah. Food for thought. It'd be interesting to know if people drink more in the winter. I would assume that they do. Yes. But yes. I'm not sure. But I think if 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 you can show people drink more in the winter, that might even lend more credence to it. Because I think in the, you right. know, in the summer, people are just kind of out and about and doing things and that they're, they're less isolated. It's more social. Yes. But I don't know. Someone can study yeah. that. That's one for somebody to do a study on, maybe. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know what? Just just. To close on that, it it's reminding me of a lot of things um, I've been reading about the past two years being in lockdown, how much mm. people have turned to alcohol within that time. Mm. So the moment that you were talking about people being isolated and, you know, what what where that drives people to go, that's one of the biggest things that has happened in the, in the last two years. And I'm talking about just here specifically in the UK. I haven't had a chance to look elsewhere. But mm. a lot of people now have huge problems with alcohol because of being isolated, because of being in lockdown. And I remember at the beginning, if you look at the first three to six months, a lot of people were sort of just thinking of it as fun, right? People were starting to drink more, having drinking parties with friends on Zoom. But it... it 
sort of took a darker turn when people realized that actually this is going to be going on for much longer than they thought. Um, mm -hmm. So I've actually been hearing a lot of or stories of people that have developed some alcohol problems within the last two years because they didn't have access to other people. They couldn't connect with other people. Maybe even their rituals of going to the pub and not necessarily having to drink that sort of brought them home with them. And yeah, so I, I think um, just when I think about everything that's happened in the past couple of years, alcohol is also something that I think about or just substance abuse in general and mm -hmm. what has happened to people because of that forced isolation for such a long time. Um, yeah. Well, well, mm. people people deal and cope with these things in different ways. Some people turn to obviously some people turn to food. That's been another problem. Yes. Um, yes. Some people turn to alcohol. Some people turn to harder drugs. Some pe people people turn to, you know, and there's positive and productive things people can turn towards as well. That's where I always yes. keep my focus. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of my I was obviously very outspoken about the lockdowns and all the other policies from the beginning. But that was one of my greatest concerns because we are as human beings, we we're social creatures. We are social beings. We need connection. We need community. We need to interact with each other. We need to see right. each other's faces and each other's smiles. We need to be able to laugh at each laugh. We need to be able to make eye contact. I don't, I can't, you know, and this is the thing. I, I think that what's weird about this time we live in is people want a study for everything, right? People want an RCT for everything, right? Until the scientist or yes. an expert has come out with a study and they've run this for I was like, guys, of course there are going to be negative repercussions. Like, I mean, if you think if, if some, say someone is a, is a savage criminal, violent criminal, and they're in prison and they do something messed up in prison, how do you punish mm -hmm. that person even further? You put them in solitary confinement. You isolate yes. them. So someone who's already being punished, if you want to make it really rough for them, you say, okay, well, you can't even talk to anyone else. You can't even see. And it drives, it's rough. It, drive, it drives people mm -hmm. crazy. I mean, the notion that you could do that to people for weeks, months on end, up to a year in some places, and that there isn't going to be a catastrophic effect, both on their physical and their mental well-being to right. me was just was just crazy. And people were like, oh, well, you know, you're not a doctor. You don't have studies. I'm like, guys, we need human interaction. Even the most introverted person, yes. I'm an extrovert, but even an introverted person, you you need those connections, touching people, like hugging people. Right. I, I can't pull up a study that tells you that hugs and physical, like that hugging, actually, maybe, maybe someone has studied this, right? But, you know, I'm not aware of something that says, oh, you know, that, that can quantify the importance of me being able to see your face right now in terms of the conversation. We know if we both put a mask on right now, mm. right? The the our ability to connect with each other and have this conversation would decrease. By by how Rapidly. much? By how much? I don't know. How much should affect yes. my mood and your mood? I don't know, but I wouldn't be able to read. Wait, is she, is she, is she smiling? Is she laughing? Yeah. Does does she want to say something? Is she right? I I can look at you and I can see, okay, cool. Like and everyone we interact with, whether it's someone you're just walking past on the street or you're having a conversation, it's so important. And mm. I feel like all of that was just thrown away. It was all just, it was all just, it wasn't even considered. And no. now, now people are talking about it, but I remember back in 2020, 2021, I was like, guys, all of this is, are you, are you considering? Firstly, firstly, we don't even know that this is working or helping in terms of what you're claiming it's trying to deal with. But right. secondly, what about the downstream effects? socially, physically, childhood development, 
mental health, physical health, the economy, mm. inflation, unemployment, all of these things that are now people are talking about it and they're like, oh my gosh, we've got a mental health crisis and we've got a cost of living crisis and we've got, yeah, it's been kind of maddening for me because I was talking about I all that literally imagine, early 2020 and I was just like, guys, this is, you you can do this for a very, very short time, right? Two two weeks, you know, you're two weeks to slow the spread or flatten it, right? That is maybe, you know, two weeks might be about the max that you can do this without people starting to go loopy. But the longer you keep this going on for, the worse it's going to get. And I was also concerned, and I'm still seeing this, that some people are never going to get out of this cycle because yes. we adapt. People adapt to things and you get used to things. And re remember when everyone, people were literally scared, even when you know stuff calms down, people are still afraid yes. to, to go out. I mean, I've traveled. UK is not bad. But I can tell you, even in some places in the USA, there's some places where it's like the Rona never even existed. But there right. are still places you can go in the US and people are still walking around with masks outside. They're still wearing them in the gym. They're still distancing from me right, right now. Yeah, right. R people wearing masks in the gym and stuff. And I, I've, I've just seen this last. <laughs> I was there. I was there just the last couple of weeks. And I'm just like, yo, this is like they've really damaged mm -hmm. a significant like a, per a percentage of the population, I think, is just permanently damaged from this. Yes, yes, I, I agree with that. And I've been speaking to um, a lot of people and I get messages from a lot of people that say that over the past two years, they've developed, what, what is it again? Agoraphobia? Agoraphobia. Yes, Fear yes. to go outside and be involved. Right, right. That's a huge thing, especially with children, especially yep. with children. And as you're saying, a lot of people starting to have these conversations now but they will only allow for those conversations to be had by self-appointed experts. So you will still find that the average person, even two to three years on, because it's going to be nearly three years very soon, still trying to have that conversation. I think people experience some, I, I don't know, is it is it cognitive dissonance or the, just this thing of you shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking about this out loud because yeah. you might make other people it's so bizarre. And I think something that I would like to know just from you, because as you were saying, it <laughs> makes me curious. What from the beginning, though, do you think made you feel like you had to speak in the way you were? Because I guess, it, especially in the beginning, it must have been very hard, though, in early 2020 to be yeah. so convicted. Um, it was not popular. It was not popular. Yeah, not, I was not called, at a, all. I was called a, gra not a grandma killer. People said I was putting, my, you know, my words were going to put people at risk and get people killed. Um, there are people claiming, you know, I don't, oh, I don't care about people. I just care about, I only care about the economy. I'm putting the economy over human lives, this and that, you know, and then of course, later down the line comes the, you know, you're an anti-vaxxer, you're an anti-this, right. you're, you're pro-COVID, right. pro all of these things. And it's like, no, I'm just looking at this holistically. Right. Because mm -hmm. I don't with, with many things in the world, I, I don't view things as all or nothing. I recognize that things are trade offs. Right. And people don't like to think in terms of trade offs and yes. costs. Right. Especially if you're looking in the world of anything social, cultural, let alone political, it's all trade offs. Right. You put in a policy. OK, it might have these potential benefits. It might have these potential costs. These are the things that we know. These are the things that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And so on. And with the way that I said from, I think from March 2020, I think in March 2020, I put out a tweet saying that the response is the consequences of the response are going to be worse than the consequences of the virus itself. Right. Mm. Because the level of people were not scared 
into their wits. They were scared out of their wits, right? It's not a bad thing for people to be aware of what's out there and have a level of concern and risk, but it has to be, it has to be balanced. It has to be moderated, right? right? I mean, if I met someone who is afraid to go outside because they could be hit by lightning or even that they could get sick, they could get a cold, they could get a flu, or you never get in a car, you never get on a plane because it could crash. I mean, I support your right to do that. If you never want to get in a car and you never want to fly in a plane, I will 100% fight against anyone trying to force you into a car or force you on a plane. I also think that your risk analysis is crazy and that you're going to li- miss out on so much in life by yes. being so risk averse, right? We we live in a we live in a risky world. We always have. We've all we've all gotten sick before right? Our entire lives. I'm sure you've had colds, you've had flus and so on. And you got it from someone, right? Technically, anytime you go out, or even if you stay indoors, something could happen. But as an adult, as an adult, we generally accept, okay, look, there are, there are risks out there. But if you are going to have some semblance of liberty and freedom, then you need to allow people to take risks, right? We were talking before about alcohol. Okay. So I would never advocate that, oh, the UK should just ban alcohol. I mean, you could, Mm -hmm. using the logic that people have been using for the past two and a half years, you can, you can advocate for alcohol bans, cigarette bans, reducing the speed limit to 30 miles per hour, whatever it may be. Oh, you're against that. What? You don't, you don't care about people. You don't care about human life. Do you not know how many people die from alcohol? Do you know how many people die from car accidents? Why don't you want to reduce the, why don't you want to reduce the speed limit to 30 miles per hour? And the answer is because there's a trade-off, right? There's a trade-off. So if you reduce the speed limit to 30, yes, you could reduce, you would absolutely reduce traffic accidents and fatalities by, by actually by a significant margin, right? But what problems would you cause? You're now, now every journey takes two to three times as long as it did before. What does that mean for logistics? What does that mean for the truckers who deliver food and groceries to stores around the country? What does that mean for people's commutes? What does it mean for this and that? And so we accept, okay, having the speed limit at 70, this, you know, if you get in an accident at that speed, you know, that could be, that could be bad, but you know, you're not, you're not being forced to drive. And these are the risks. You, You can also drive below that limit if you want to, right? We're just saying this is a maximum. So with everything in our society, we analyze trade-offs. We think of, okay, and you know, maybe sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. It changes over time. And I, the thing to answer your question, it's just like, I was noticing that all of this was going, was just, it just went out the window. What about basic rights? Since when can the government tell you that you can't go outside, that you can't see your family, that you have to close your business, that you can't go to the store, that all of the gyms need to be shut up. It should have been, look, here's our guidance. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is our guidance. I wouldn't even have been against if they if they put out a strong recommendation that people stay at home mm. or mm-hmm. a recommendation that you don't do this or you don't. But I, I, for me, it was the force. It was the coercion. Yes. It was the complete disregard me of people's too. choices, people's freedoms, people's rights. It's just like, and also the one size fits all nature of the messaging. It was like, look, let's be real. This is a virus and it was known from early. It was known literally from about April time that primarily the people dying were 65 and older with multiple comorbidities. Children, nope. Teenagers, nope. Young adults, healthy young adults, nope, they're fine. 
you know, middle-aged, okay, middle-aged, maybe if you've got some bad comorbidities and so on, you mm -hmm. might have, right? So it, it's very age stratified. This isn't one of those things where it's like, okay, no matter, no matter who you are, no matter your age, no matter your health condition, yes. this is very, and that was known from early. And it, so it was like, well, that should be the messaging give people the facts, give people the info, give people the statistics and let people make those decisions, right? I know myself and my family situation, and I certainly care more about myself and my family situation than any politician does out there. They don't yes. even know who we are. They don't know our names. There have been, you know, every year, tens of thousands of people die from the flu, right? It happens. It, it, it sucks. You know, it, it sucks. And, and then on top of this, one more thing, just while we're on this point is also yeah. two more. <laughs> Let me do two more. Actually, one is that one is that you cannot stop this type of virus, right? You can't stop it in its tracks. It's, it's why we can't get rid of the flu, right? Yes. You, we, 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 yes. we can't get rid of it. We've, we've never been able to because there are certain types of viruses, coronaviruses in particular, which it, it's airborne. It's just out there, colds, flus. So it's just out there. And so some people are going to get sick. So I was just like, okay, well, if it's that contagious, you know, people are, people are going to get it. And actually early yeah. on, if you remember, they did, they did kind of say that because the thing was about flattening the curve. The lockdowns were, you know, they said that they needed to get more PPE and they didn't want too many people getting sick at the same time. They never claimed it was going to reduce the number of people who got right. it. And then they yes. kept shifting the goalpost. And then finally, on a sort of deeper, more philosophical level, um, prior to any of this happening, I've been very, very aware and cognizant of the power of fear, the power of propaganda and groupthink, right? And when mm -hmm. these things combine, I've looked in many incidents that have happened throughout history. Obviously, people bring up, you know, the, the Holocaust and, you know, the the, the Holodomor. Um, but more recently, what about the Rwandan genocide? Um, right. There are many, many examples, right? We've heard about things like the Milgram experiment, the Ash experiment, the Stanford prison experiment. I've looked into mm -hmm. all of these things well before there was any pandemic situation. I've read the Gulag Archipelago. I've read mm -hmm. Ordinary Men. I read them before this thing happened. So when it started to kick off and I started to see this people forming in this in this group and there's one line and you're not allowed to quit, I was like, ooh, okay, this is it in real life. This is it in real it. life, right? Yeah. I cannot, I cannot just fall into this thing. Like I have to ring the alarm and go, wait, wait, guys, what about this? What about um, this? Are you thinking about this? Are you considering this? And in the in the hysteria, in the fear, how do people respond? Oh, you you know you you just want people to die. You don't care about people. You're selfish. You're this. You're that. It's like no, I'm just trying to consider the bigger picture. You're looking at this very very narrow part of it. You're looking at okay, yes. just just this one virus. It's like you know people die of other things. Like here's here's a crazy stat. Here's a crazy stat. Let's do some math here. Um, how, what, what's the claim of how many people globally in the past two and a half years died of the virus? Is it about six, six million? I Something think it's like about that? six million. Yeah. About six million. About six million in two and a half years. Um, do you know how many people die in an average year globally? Mm -mm. I don't. About 60 million. So it would be fair to say that in the past two and a half years, about 150 million people have died of other things. Hmm. So people will go to me and go, yeah, but Zuby, like, you know, come on, man, like 6 million people. I'm like, bro, do you know how many people die per year? 
right? Do you do you you've never even thought of that before, right? It's ne it's never even come to your brain to think, yeah. okay, six million six million sounds like you know, let's say it's two million in one year, or th or three, say three million in one year. That sounds like a bit, but okay. Number one, what was the average age of death? It was over seventy five. Mm -hmm. Okay, the average age of death was over seventy five, right? A seventy five year old dying is it's not the same as a seven year old dying, right? Seventy five year olds do do die sadly we don't we don't live forever um but also it's like well what about everything else and why do we people don't even know that other number people don't even don't even right. care why is why is someone dying from this particular virus considered worse or or than someone dying of cancer or or heart disease or or mm -hmm. suicide or this or that or, or some other things which are being exacerbated by the policies, right? And no one, no one cared. It was just so myopic. So that was the thing that yeah. even to this day, it was just like, people have snapped out of the psychosis mostly now. But that was the thing that I was just like, guys, you're not, I see what you're seeing as well. But there's a much bigger picture here. There's a much mm -hmm. bigger picture that we need to really consider, right? Because if you're going to advocate for this, you have to consider the trade offs, you can't just be doing all of this and acting like, oh, well, there's no downside. It's all good. Let's just keep doing it. We don't even know if it's working, right. but it, it, it makes people feel. And it's just like, man, like this is uh yeah, it got it got very gnarly. I'm glad that it's calming yeah. down now, but it got it got really, Me really too. weird. Me too. Me too. Yeah. And you know what? I actually got introduced to you and your work and your voice in mid to late 2020. And it was oh, okay. at the time when I was, yeah, and it was at the time when I was breaking out of my own echo chambers. I was actually always on the same page as as you probably were definitely were actually in terms of covid and lockdown and everything that was happening i made a commitment to myself that i was going to live my life that i was not going to allow the news to dictate and I, i've never been that kind of person anyway but because of the level of fear that i could feel and almost as if um I was being coerced to be fearful, even though I didn't feel it and I didn't believe it. And I, mm -hmm. I could hold multiple truths, right? I could acknowledge what is happening around us, but I, I could also say, okay, this doesn't seem quite right. And because I've worked in advertising before, I know the power of language and how language is used to weaponize and to control a, a majority of people, to control nationality, mm. et cetera. Um, so when it comes to COVID, I, I didn't even buy into that fear so much, but I found your work and your voice at a time when I needed it the most, when I bought into a certain ideology and narrative in terms of race. So mm. that's where my moment of being like, I was on board, I was on board with you, but now you have lost me. I don't quite know how and why <laughs> you have lost me, but. <laughs> I love this, that's tell me more. That's where I was. Oh yeah, that, that's where I was. That feeling of something is, something very sinister and disturbing is happening right now. And I know what I'm being told to think. I know what I'm seeing. But none of this is making sense. It seems to be going against everything these people say they want. And I was experiencing and I was caught up in the immense division that most people probably felt in May, June, July of 2020, especially mm -hmm. in relation to race. And that's when I came across your work. And I remember in the beginning being quite... Do you remember, do you remember what you saw? I... 
I wouldn't even be able to remember exactly what I saw because I think it was actually what you were speaking about in relation to COVID. But for some reason, it made sense and related to the conversations around race that were happening. But okay. you were mainly driving the point home around how we need to be able to question things, how we need to look at things through a lens of nuance and acknowledge context instead of taking things hook, line, sinker. And it just made perfect sense mm. when I was thinking about everything that was pouring out of the US and, and here in the UK, it was landing and people were out on the streets protesting. Here in the UK, we were being told that the police here in the UK who don't carry guns are gunning down black people. Uh, so it, a lot of things just didn't quite make sense. So I found <laughs> it didn't quite, you know, but I found your message when I needed it the most. And I remember it actually landing exactly where it needed to for me, but it also felt quite jarring. And it felt very jarring because I wasn't used to seeing people speaking in that way, or at least my algorithm and the information that I was choosing to take in was not allowing voices like yours to enter my sphere. I was very, without even realizing on a subconscious level, I was very intentional about making sure that I don't allow anything in that is going to cause me cognitive dissonance, that is going to make me have to sit with my current beliefs and my current worldview and have to work some things out. So your voice amongst the many that I ended up finding after was actually very important because at that time, Zubi, especially mid 2020 and early 2020, it was not like it is now where you come across more people that are willing to have conversations around self-censorship, willing to question things. At that time, there was so much to lose, if you will. The risk was so high. And that's why I just had to ask you, what, what was it that made you, despite everyone else going in one direction, what was it that made you stand and what was actually true for you? What made you fiercely stand in integrity? Because I just remember how intense it was. Mm at that time it it's almost like it was it's another world now when i look at it retrospectively i'm i'm almost mind blown that all of that took place and i don't think we've even come out of it properly yet i feel like we're still just there's still the residue of it you know mm -hmm. i think in, in a few years maybe five years time we'll be looking at it in absolute shock so yeah voices like yours and when i came across your work it actually really drove me and fueled me to speak in the way that i do today in a way that i always have but just in a different way um and i think it's also what encouraged me to feel like you know what i can put all of my unthinkable thoughts in this open letter and there are people and i think especially the fact that you were from the uk also i loved that a lot because I think sometimes we hear conversations like this mainly coming out of the US. So I think sometimes it can be a very um, a very North American lens to some of these conversations. So I actually appreciated that you were from the UK and that you've had the life experience that you've had and that you've, you know, you're able to look at things in a really multidimensional way. Um, but yeah, to speak in the way you do at that time, I experienced it myself. It was not it was not easy. It was not brandable. It was not marketable. It was not a thing. <laughs> you know? Just it just wasn't. It just wasn't. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well. Th well. Thank you. I'm. I'm honored. I'm, I'm happy. I'm. I'm happy that my words have been able to, to do that and to yes. encourage and embolden other people because it's part of the reason. I'm, and I'm sure you feel this way now as well. It's. It's part of the reason why. 
I feel a necessity to, it's part of why I feel a necessity to, to speak up because I know it does encourage and embolden other people, sometimes directly, yes. sometimes indirectly. Because a lot of my message is not about, I've said this before, which is that I don't want to tell people what to think. I do want to tell people to think, mm -hmm. right? So whenever there is something going on where there's a really strong group think and you're questioning is discouraged, personal individual thinking is discouraged, the so-called experts are not wanting to answer anything, people are encouraging uh, deplatforming and censorship and this and that, that always, that's, that sets off real alarm bells for me because right. I, I'm like, wait, we should always be able to have conversations. There should always be dialogue. You should always be allowed to dissent. Even if I, this isn't just like dissent I agree with, right? Yes. But it, like you should just be, these, these are very basic tenets of what actually made Western society what it is, right? Allowing free thought of, allowing free thought, allowing discussion, allowing yes. dissent, allowing people to question things and so on. And it can be uncomfortable. I understand that, right? There's things that I have deeply held beliefs too. I don't, I'm not, I don't love people, you know, <laughs> I don't, no one loves their beliefs being, you know, questioned or put to the test. So, so I, I understand the, I understand the imperative. I'm not someone who even struggles. I'm, I'm very pro free speech. I'm very anti-censorship, but I'm not someone who struggles to understand the sense, the censorious urge, right? Because I think that's a natural inclination, Wh whoever you are, whatever your beliefs are. If you hear someone who is questioning or challenging things, let alone, uh, you know, mocking or attacking things that you hold dearly, it could be your political beliefs, it could be your religious beliefs, your cultural beliefs, something you feel about yourself or your country. It's not comfortable. It's not, it's not pleasant. The natural desire is we need to shut that person up. That person should not be allowed to say what they're saying. Now, look, there are there are levels where stuff is, you know, hyper egregious, right? If someone is, you know, calling for calling for death of an individual or, you know, putting out threats or, you know, right, there, there's levels of stuff where it's like, okay, wait, like that's yes. that, that's way, way, way beyond. But something that's just a, you know, a, a dissenting opinion, a challenge, an alternative viewpoint, I'm my reaction is like, hmm, why do you think that way? Right? So even with people who are, my, my, my sort of critics are, are funny because oftentimes they criticize things that I don't believe and that I haven't said, right? They have this sort of straw man image of you or this caricature <laughs> of you where, okay, mm -hmm. Zuby's the guy who believes that. And I'm like, where did you even, where did you even get that from? Have you actually paid attention or are you just, right? And so, but, but if someone has like a, a, a legit criticism, I'm like, okay, interesting. Why, even if it's not a legitimate criticism, I'm like, okay, why do yes. you, why do you think, what, what do you think I'm wrong about on that? Right? Like I'm, I'm open to it. I don't know everything. Every day I'm learning, every yeah. day I'm getting better, but that that happens because we're allowed to have dialogue because dissent is allowed communication is allowed and so on any subject doesn't matter if it's the if it's the pandemic response if it's uh, racial issues if it's political issues if it's re religious issues i'm like yo we've got to be able to talk we've got 8 billion yes. people in this world there are no two people who share the exact same beliefs and opinions on everything that does not exist you can take the two closest people they could love it they could be in the same family they could be raised the same you're going to right. get differences you're going to get dissent and so 
if we want to actually live in a in a tolerant and peaceful and diverse let's use let's use those words right community and society then we need to be able to tolerate people we need to be able to be actually em empathetic and even with those we disagree with go okay i disagree with that but i understand i understand why you think like that i get what i get where yes. you're coming from we might reach a different conclusion right but uh, oh here, here's here's one more thought i've had well let me let me finish on this point i think mm -hmm. one issue that we're having is that and I think social media does this a lot where people start the people start with people's conclusions and work backwards. Right. So we're missing a lot of the epistemology of why and how people think what they think. Right. So I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing to understand what someone's final conclusion on a particular issue is. I think what's more interesting and what's more telling is how they reach there and in most situations right so there could be an issue where i reach i reach conclusion a you reach conclusion b but we might find you know in this 10-step process of thinking we only diverge at the eighth point right mm -hmm. so up until from the beginning and but what people are doing now is if they reach if someone reaches conclusion a and they reach conclusion b they assume it's because from the very beginning you diverged Right. And that divergence mm. is oftentimes simply good and evil. Right. So it's just good and evil. Right. So if, for example, let's take something that's not too contentious. Right. I think that taxes should be lower and someone else thinks that taxes should be higher. The net, the urge online is to assume that I want taxes to be lower because I'm selfish and I hate poor people right. and I want the roads to be crap and I don't want there to be health care and I don't want to. And, and I hate homeless people, right? So they're just, is oh, it's because he's evil, right? He wants taxes lower because he's evil. It's like, wait, hang on. Let's go through the epistemology of this, right? Like we probably agree up until this point, we probably diverge where it comes to who, who should do it. You might think the mm. government should take care of this. I might think individuals, corporations, the free market and charities should take care of this particular situation, right? Maybe, maybe... Right. You could just be you could take one of those issues. You could take just homelessness. Right. right? And someone's like, we need to raise the taxes and taxes because we need to take care of homelessness. It's like, wait, wait, wait. I disagree. I don't disagree that homeless people have just as much dignity and equality under the law and should be taken. Up. I, yes. think, I think homelessness is a horrible thing. I don't think that the government is the best mechanism to take care of this past a certain level. And I think that the government mm. have proven this over multiple decades because they've got all these billion dollar, billion pound budgets and the problem is getting worse. So clearly they're either they don't care or they're incompetent. But right. on every single issue and, and you see you see it with it, it, it could be the immigration issue. It could it, it mm -hmm. literally ever, any any issue. Anything. And I think that's why dialogue is so important. So if someone hears me say, ah, I think this BLM thing's a scam. Mm. What? You don't think black, <laughs> right? You, you so so wait. So either what you you, right. you you don't believe that black lives. It's like, bro, look at me, look at me, look at my family. Do you think that's a logical conclusion? That that's my reason for disagreeing. Is, is right? Right? Why, why do you say okay? That's why? Why do you think reason. like that? And I and mm. I can walk you through. I can walk you through my thinking process, and we'll probably agree with a lot. There'll come a point where where right. where, where we maybe we diverge. But we'll agree with uh, with a lot of the points, and I think that when 
this is a big problem that's leading to increased political polarization, especially, you know, mm -hmm. with this whole like left right divide where, yes. you know, people on the right are thinking that, okay, well, they're just, they're just evil. We're good. They're evil. People on the left are thinking, okay, well, we are good and they're evil because you're just assuming that everyone has bad and bad motives. Everyone has bad intentions. I have never met anyone who wants more crime. I've never met anyone who wants more homelessness. I've right. never met anyone who wants more people to die and more people like that's not that's not a position. Like, that's that's not a position. I've never heard someone who wants more police brutality. I don't care left, right. right, up, down. I've never heard anyone advocate that position. I've never heard anyone say that black lives don't matter. I've never heard anyone right. say that. Me neither. Right? And so it's this it's just straw manning all the way down and it's like well this is why we can't have conversations because right. if you're just going to assume that the per other person is just evil or stupid or uneducated off the bat rather than listening to them and going okay let's let's hear what you have to say even if it's uncomfortable and we can go okay this is yeah. the point this is the point right. where we diverge that that point you said there i don't agree with that here's here's my thoughts on it and even if you walk yes. away still disagreeing you at least understand okay that's why that's why that person thinks like that and that's why there's perhaps millions of people who think like that yes 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 and something that i'm always thinking about is that communication piece because something we something you know most people will say is that we need to have more open conversations we need to allow for more dialogue etc cetera, etc cetera. and of course i completely agree that's at the core of the work that i do but then i am often finding myself thinking about the how. How do we do that? Because I think our digital lives are now such a big part of our lives that we immediately assume that we need to be trying to have those conversations online. I mm -hmm. don't see many people prioritizing having those difficult conversations, and they don't always have to be difficult, just open, honest, authentic conversations, the questioning, the curiosity, the reflection, we should be trying to have those in our interpersonal relationships. I think where a lot of people end up feeling like, okay, where do we even begin? How is this going to happen? Is when we start believing that we need to be having those conversations online and we're trying to have them on platforms that actually don't allow for nuance. We're having them on platforms that incentivize outrage, that force you to speak in a very limited way and people react those platforms are not for responding they're they're designed for reaction right mm -hmm. so something that i have been thinking about a lot now which is why i've been in a place of just observation and silence and really trying to understand on a much deeper level how we can actually make this communication piece more practical is the how and something that i always come back to and i i wonder what you think but i think it's there needs to be more of a focus on the individual in the sense that I, I think this is a lot about you rewiring your own mindset, rewiring and having a close look at your own worldview, allowing yourself to interact with different ideas, different thoughts, and almost working at yourself on the individual level and then bringing that into your interpersonal relationships without making online sharing or public sharing a priority, which is where I think... Mm -hmm. Most people believe that they have to start. Um, so yeah, that's that's a piece that I'm constantly thinking about, as in how we, how can we actually start to bring solutions to this idea of having more open conversations and open communication, which I think is fantastic, but mm -hmm. I think it can still be quite vague how we actually practically do that without prioritizing doing it online.
Yeah, I hear that totally. I think, um, you know, I think, first of all, it's, it's a challenge. I think it always mm. has been and always mm -hmm. will be. Um, we're never going to get it perfect. But I, with that said, I actually, even though the environment has become a little bit more censorious in some ways, I actually think that it's better now than it was a few years ago. I, yes. I think the, yes. I, I actually I think it's improved. I think that on multiple levels, I think there are more people who are talking and doing podcasts like this and having conversations that's happening in the UK. It's happening in the US. It's happening across yes. the world. Um, I think that some of the narratives that we were discussing are being broken down. Right. The sort of mindless narratives of, you know, this is the only one view allowed on this. Stuff, right. You're, mm. you're now allowed to completely question the entire pandemic narrative and and criticize the response. And you can do that yes. now. And it's fine. Like I remember in 2020, the amount of vitriol I got for saying some of the stuff like it was people were saying some really, really nasty things. And I was like, whoa, like mm. this is crazy. You talked about, you know, the post George Floyd era and, and the hysteria that came with yes. that on multiple levels and right. That's calmed down now, right? Now people are like, oh, okay, there is an organization called BLM and you know, there's this and there's, oh, actually mm -hmm. there's some corruption going. You can, you can now question it. You can challenge. So, you know, even the whole, what people call woke ideology, it's being challenged more now. It's being questioned more yes. now. The, the whole gender ideology, it's being questioned. The racial narratives, it's yes. being questioned. Parents are find out, found out when their kids were homeschooling some of the stuff that they were learning and being taught. And so now parents, especially in the States, homeschooling has shot up by millions. There's more people really? going, okay, yep, homeschooling rates have gone significantly up in the USA, many more millions. Um, and so to me, that is all positive. That's all good because that is, oh, okay, you are quote unquote allowed to mm -hmm. question and challenge, right? And I, like I said before, I, I want people to be thinking. I don't want people to be marching in lockstep. I'm not trying to be this guy who's like creating some cult and everyone must follow me and believe exactly what I believe. I'm just like, no, like I try to, I try to lead by example, right? So I'm like, look, I'm having these conversations. And also when I'm online, yeah, sure. Sometimes I, you know, I kick the hornet's nest a little bit and I, 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 I put out certain jokes or whatever, but I'm not intentionally just a, a provo provocateur, right? I'm not someone who's just there trolling and trying to get a reaction yes. and trying to just, you know, own, own the libs. I, I, I could do that. I could do that. I could grow my following quicker if I just became this sort of firebrand and just, right. but it's like, look, I, I actually... I'm not trying to raise the temperature. I'm not trying to add to more division and create more hostility. Um, and I know, you know, millions of people see my interactions every day, especially on Twitter. So I have to carry myself in a certain in a certain manner and lead by example, mm -hmm. right? So I don't I don't randomly attack or insult people ever, right? Even when people do, I'll, I'm respectful with people. I'm civil. I'm so if someone yes. comes to me completely sideways once in a while, I may mm -hmm. air them out. But even then, I'll do it in a sort of fairly fairly graceful way i'll do it in a much nicer way than necessarily they're deserving so i just try to try to lead by example it's why i'm a big fan of you know i, I love what you're doing i love what mm. you know i love what i love what of course you know joe rogan is doing i love what mm -hmm. they're doing with trigonometry just look let's yes. let's talk let's talk let, let's have these conversations we're going to agree we're going to disagree because i think i think modeling is very important and i think this is one thing that is getting worse in politics. Like I'm not someone who looks to politicians to be my role models at all. But I think that the if you look at the way politicians interact with each other, 
it's really declined. It's become a lot more childish, right? When I'm on Twitter and I'm seeing elected representatives, whether in the UK or the, and, and they're trash talking each other and they're insulting each other and they're calling each other names. And it's just, it's very childish. It's almost like watching 14 year old yes. boys, you know, kind of, kind of going back and forth. And I'm like, this is, this is not a good example, right? This is, this is not a good example. I would honestly say, you know, I'm, I've, I've said openly that if I were American, I would have voted for Trump. But this is one of my biggest criticisms of it. By the way, I don't think Biden is better at this. I think a lot of them, they're just, they're not, they're not professional in the way that they're conducting themselves. I think they're setting a poor example for what social and political discourse should look like. Agreed. Right? People on the left Agreed. are doing it. People on the right are doing it. And I'm like, you're not. And then, of course, you're going to get your, your, your fans and your supporters. And they're going to, to some degree, they're going to mimic that. Right. And they're just going to be going yeah. at that side and going at that side. And I'm like, well, if you think of what the goal of on paper anyway, right, like the goal of even having politics and having politicians is to represent the people. Right. If you are an American politician, you're the president, you're a congressperson, you're a mayor, you're a governor, you're the British prime minister. Your goal shouldn't just be to represent the right or represent the left, or represent yes. just the progressives. Just You are supposed to represent the country. Yes, you will have your own leanings, you'll have your own constituents, and so on, but you're not meant to just, you know, okay, I've got this 30%, like the rest of the other 70% of the country, you know, F them. Let, let's, even, let's even antagonize them, let's go against them, let's, let's make it clear we don't like them, right? I, I'm like, you can... You can represent your values and your beliefs and your quote unquote side without being super hostile towards everybody else, right? So yes. I'm a Christian. I was I was raised a Christian, right? And I can I can put out that message to some degree and I can I can lead by example and I can be tell people what I believe in. I can do that without being a complete jerk to everybody mm. of every other religion or no religion. In fact, I, I would argue that I represent what a Christian is better by not doing so. If I'm just like, oh, yes. well, this is what I believe and I'm right. And you're all stupid and you're all this and you're all that and you're all that. Then it's like, oh, wow, look, look at this. Look at this arrogant. No, no, no. It doesn't right. matter if it's religion, if it's politics, if it's any, be, be, you, you don't want to be that person who's just hyper intolerant and arrogant and just has this level of hubris and, oh, I'm of course, everything I know is correct. Therefore, everyone else is just an idiot. It's like, no, I, I can be respectful of other people and also be interested. I, I'm cool. I want to know what you believe. Like, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yes. Why, do, why do people, why are there many different religions? Why do I, okay, what are the differences between Judaism and Islam and Christianity? And, you know, how come they believe this over here and we believe this? Like, okay, there's a lot of stuff that we share, but we diverge on this. I'm genuinely interested in human beings. It's like I want to yes. I want to understand. I don't have all the answers. I can learn something from everybody. So cool, let's talk. Let's learn something. Right. And you know what? You've just articulated why it is that I resonate with your work and a handful of other people because when I was breaking out of my own echo chambers and I was coming across voices that were both very refreshing but also in the truest sense of the word triggering because it led me into cognitive dissonance and I had to face it and I had to sit with myself, I had to self-reflect. I came across a lot of voices, a lot of voices that were very, um, and I'm sure they would even refer to themselves as anti-woke, for example. 
And in the beginning, they were putting out messages that I needed to hear, even though I didn't agree with everything. I didn't need to. I just needed something that would break the spell of everything I had been taken in for that past year. And I quickly realized that a lot of people were finding themselves in a performance where they knew that they, by speaking in a certain way, by being as controversial as possible, by being, um, by taking a very strong, and I'll, I'll just stick with that example of the anti-work, so to speak. They knew that by really harping this very divisive, controversial message that gets people excited, it gives people this kind of joy because they found someone who can speak for them in the way that they wouldn't mm. ever. Um, they knew that would get them more of a following because you can easily build a very strong echo chamber, especially at that time yes. when people needed people that were going against everything that we were seeing that would be labeled as woke ideology. People needed those people that are like, no, we are not sticking with this. This is what is wrong. This is what it is. And I realized that a lot of people were starting to find themselves out of integrity. I don't know if they were ever, ever were in integrity, but I could see that there were people that were willing to create some kind of persona because they knew that they would be rewarded for the persona. And there were a handful of people, and I believe you were one of those people who I could tell didn't have a problem with being direct, didn't have a problem with saying what it is that they can see, but they were focusing on the behavior instead of the individual mm. and making putting people into one group. And I think that's what I find and continuously do find very refreshing about um, what it is you do, because I have found that some people have just started to fall into the exact same behavior that they claim to oppose. They claim to be against intolerance, but they are incredibly intolerant themselves <laughs> against cancel culture, but they will celebrate cancel culture if someone they don't like is canceled. Um, so I, I think this is something that I've been seeing for the past couple of years. And I think with when it comes to people that are having conversations like you and I, for me, there actually aren't that many people that I can say mm. this person is truly in integrity. They are building their platform. They now do have a following, but they're still staying in integrity with themselves. I think I'm seeing more people starting to kind of lean into that anti-work persona. Um, mm. And I, yeah, I, I've just always been very intentional, actually, from the very beginning of doing the work that I do in my open letter, that I don't want to fall into either side. I don't want to break mm. out of an echo chamber and go straight into another one. I really want to be intentional with what it is that I do. I want to look at the behavior, not the people. I don't want to call every single person a sheep. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to fall into the trap of using language that actually doesn't mean much, and it can. Mm -hmm. People are losing credibility by falling into this very divisive language, you know. And I, yeah, that's why I'm always. I find it so refreshing when I come across people who can still be fierce in their message, who can still be very direct, and will not mince their words, but they won't fall into that trap of the of the division. Um, yeah. And I think it's getting it's getting quite hard to find those people, I think. Yeah, it, it's hard. It's it's especially hard over time because it's a lot mm -hmm. easier to only be it's it's a lot easier to only get attacked by one side rather than both. 
<laughs> yes. Right. So yes. it's a lot. It's a lot easier yes. to just go. It's easier to go full woke or full anti woke or full left or full right, and you know you've clearly got your team and you've got your opponent, and right. your team backs you and your opponent. If you're hovering, even if you're not dead center, but you're you know you're willing to call out some nonsense from both sides or you're willing to just kind of remain free and not have this hard allegiance, then you will yeah. get stick. You you do get stick from both people, right? You know, I, I've, yes. I've had stick for, oh, you know, you're not, right? There are, pe there are people who even, oh, like, we talked a little bit about the pandemic thing, right? You know, because there are people who don't even think that the virus exists and that there are people who are, you know, I, I'm not I'm not an actual anti-vaxxer. Like, you know, I've, I've never been called that ever prior to yes. about a year ago. Right, vaccines in general, right? Good ones, good effective ones, right? I've never, I've never had a had a problem with or anything. Um, I was yes. just against coercion. I'm against coercion. I'm against mandates. I'm against yes. you know running over people's civil liberties and bullying people and so on. Um, but there are people who are, you know, like really, really deep down the sort of anti-vax rabbit hole and you know the actual like real deep conspiracy theorists rabbit holes who yes. you know will call me a, a shill or a grifter. Right? They're mad that I'm not just completely opposed to the whole thing or they're mad that i don't think that um viruses don't even exist right because they believe in right. just terrain theory so they're like oh you believe like oh he believes virus and i'm like dude like i'm not all the way there it's like i'm not all the way and and both of both of y'all are just as are, are just as annoying but looping back around to something you said um here's here's something that i, I think is really important for people to know and i believe it is much better and much healthier to define yourself and your message by what you are for rather than what you're against. Yes. I think as soon as you start identifying with and describing yourself by what you are opposed to rather than what you support and what you believe and what you think is good for society, then you're you're now in a, in a, in a weird position, right? I think anti-racists, fall into this anti-woke falls into this and as soon as you you know anti-feminist anti like right you know that's right. why i don't I'm, i don't i'm i'm very careful to not label myself for the most part as like anti this thing because then over mm -hmm. a course of time as you alluded to earlier you can end up quite literally becoming what you're fighting against what you claim Absolutely. to be fighting against you can start out in 2017 as an anti-racist by 2020 you are there talking about how white people are, are the, <laughs> and how this and, and, and you're like whoa like you you know and 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 you and you see it happen right you see it happen you see it happen with yes. a lot of you see it happen with a lot of you know self yes. you know self-described feminists it's one thing to say hey you know i'm a i'm a woman's rights advocate or i'm a i'm a i'm a champion or you know i'm i'm pro women's rights but when you become, yes. I'm anti the patriarchy or I'm anti, I'm anti men, you know, when you see these, they become misandrists, right? They become, yes. oh, wow, this person, this person is just being vitriolic against men in general, speaking very, very broadly, right. men, men are trash, men are this, men are that. And I'm like, whoa, like if a man were saying that about women, you'd be very, very quick to call that person a misogynist. But mm -hmm. listen to what you're saying. If you see a lot of what people are saying um about white about white people especially white men right. i'm like man if so swap swap the word white man for black woman and see how that sounds see how that sounds 
you'd be like, yo, that person, like that person is, is sounding crazy. Like, listen to what they're saying. They're, they're just demonizing and painting with this very, very broad brush. And I'm just like, yeah, well, if it's not cool in that direction, it's not cool in that direction. So right. how about we all have some principles and yes. don't use that kind of, you know, I'm not here to police people's speech, but you know, let's be responsible in our speech. Let's talk about right. Let's talk about responsibility as much as we talk about rights. Right. Agreed. Agreed. And it's so timely that you say that because I was having a conversation with um, a new friend of mine, Kyle, and he was saying the exact same thing about, and he does similar work to, to you and I, Kyle Creek. He's, he's also known as um, the captain online. I think you would love his work if you're not connected okay. already. And he was saying that his partner was saying that exact same thing to him, saying that your message is infinitely more powerful and more grounded when you speak through the lens of what you are for, not what you are against, because you can easily find yourself becoming so cynical and that cynicism can end up being a performance and you get rewarded for that performance and then you get trapped in this persona. Um, so I, I really appreciate that you said that again, because it's, I think it's it's a message that I have, I'm so lucky that I've just ended up embodying in my work anyway, but I think my sobriety and my recovery journey has just led me to a place of really just focusing on what I am for so that I can not find myself in this hole again. But I think it's so important for anyone, for anyone listening actually. And it really, it really allows you to be more expansive in your thinking instead of being so limited. When you think about what, what am I actually for? I know what I'm against, but do I know and can I actually articulate what I am for and what I'm standing for? And I think it beautifully ties in with values as well. So yeah, I, I too think that's a very mm. important message. I, I just thought of something else as you were saying that. You're absolutely mm. right on that. And to take it even a, a level further, I think another thing that it does, if you define yourself by what you're against, is you start seeing apparitions of it everywhere. Yes. Right? Yes. You start see you you start <laughs> seeing it everywhere. Right. Yes. So if you are again, like you use it use an easy example. Oh, you know, you could say I don't anti anti-fascist, right? You see if yes. you're an anti-fascist, you see fascists everywhere. I've never met a fascist, have you? Never, but apparently that amongst us, maybe we are them. I've, 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 I've never, I've never, I've never met one. I meet a lot of people. I've met hundreds of of people. I've, I've never met, I've never met someone, and he's like, I'm like, what are your politics? You know, oh, I'm a fascist. I'm like, whoa, okay, I found one. Never. Um, you know, or you know, anti-racism. They they see racism everywhere, every everywhere. single day, every single day, every person they interact with, they're looking. Where's the racism? Where's the racism? Mm -hmm. Right? Because they assume it's there. Um, you know, and you can get the same on the other side, you become anti this thing. And it's just you, it's now everywhere, you're searching yes. for it, you're seeing it where it may not even exist, right? If you become, you know, there's people who, you know, they're so anti woke, that they see, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, they see a, a Marks and Spencer's ad. And it's got a mixed <laughs> group of people on it. And, and it. and it triggers them in some way. They're like, Oh, why are they <laughs> like, and I'm like, dude, yes. Like, I, I just saw a group of like, I'm not convinced that that's a woke ad. I think that's just an ad with a range of people. You, you, you see what I mean? But similarly, <laughs> the anti-racist would see an ad and it's got a white family You're and they're so like, right. this is white supremacy. It's like, right. no, that's just a family. Like that's a British family. And that's you are in average, Britain. That's what, it, that's what an average British family <laughs> actually looks like. 
right? You know, and, and it, it's weird, you know, people just get very, very, you've seen this conversation going on now about, you know, the Little Mermaid. And I'm like, oh guys, my goodness. On, bo on both sides, right? And I'm on just like, both yo, sides. I'm, I'm like, guys, you're arguing over the skin color of a fictitious mermaid in Do a Disney a cartoon that's like 30 something years old. I, I don't right. even know why y'all watching these movies to begin with because they're for children, but <laughs> it's not it's not that deep, right? I mean, I can no, understand no. when there's like a historical character or something and they do like a complete race swap and sure. it's very, you know, you make Anne Boleyn a black woman. Right. Or That's what you, I was thinking. Or, or you do, I don't know if you do a biopic on Nelson Mandela and, you know, you get, <laughs> you get Brad Pitt to play him. <laughs> I think it would that's be a bit like, Fassbender. okay, that's, yeah, that's, all right, that's, that's kind of silly. That's kind of silly. But guys, like, it's like, it's a cartoon. Right. right or some people even some people go as far as like the voice who does the voice of a cartoon character oh that was the whole thing i remember <laughs> didn't didn't the actor from the simpsons apologize yeah for playing apu i mean mm -hmm. it, it's it's ridiculous <laughs> and, you're, and you're so right actually because when you look at the other side of that i think this is where just feeling more empowered and and in your own sovereignty and autonomy is beautiful because We've just given examples of that side. When you live your life through the lens of being for against something, there's almost like an underlying commitment to find it everywhere. So you can feel like you're fulfilling your duty. Um, the other side of that is when you're actually for something, when you are, for example, you're for open conversations, you're for healthy disagreement, you're for understanding without, and knowing that it doesn't have to mean you accept everything you just start to live a much more fruitful life and you're able to you're able to relate to other people knowing that you don't have to take anyone else's worldview as your own and i think if we just continue to encourage each other to live just from that state of being for something being for your values being for openness whatever that looks like for you i think you will find a lot of people even just mentally in a better mental position, because I think a lot of what we're seeing is leading people into identity crisis. Mm -hmm. People are so unstable. You have the most unstable people just leading movements, being the voices of people. And I think when we start to just detach ourselves from that and look at things through what we're actually for, I've, I've personally found that makes a, makes a world of a difference. It really does. It really it does. does. Africa, it's been amazing talking to you. Um, I definitely want to have you on the podcast again, but I also want to be yes. respectful of your time. <laughs> what have you got going on that you would like to direct people towards? Is there anything they should be looking out for? Um, so I think just the one thing that I can mention is my podcast. I do have a podcast called Beyond the Self. It's all about how to focus on what you can control. And I, for me, the reason why that is so important, especially in the last few years, there are so many things that are happening that are outside of our control and we're made to focus on those things when there's actually so much that is still within your control. Your own behavior, your worldview is still within your control. How you behave, not just with other people, but also with yourself, your mindset, mm. identity, the decisions you make, your values. Um, so my podcast really approaches all of those conversations, but I like to go beyond the surface of what we usually get in the self-help industry, self-improvement, 
Um, and it's very unfiltered. It's very unfiltered from an honest place, not from a self-righteous place. So I would just recommend to just check that out. It's beyond the self. And then if anyone wants to continue these conversations with me, I am on Instagram at Africa Brooke with an E at the end. Um, because yeah, these conversations are not me speaking from a platform to everyone else. I, I like to think of them as I'm on eye level with anyone who wants to continue the conversation with me. So yeah. Those are the two places. Awesome. Africa Brooke, thank you so much for coming on the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Been an honor and a pleasure thank speaking you. with you. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stuntly a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.